1: The Guardian.
2: Edith Wharton.
3: Virginia Woolf. Shakespeare.
2: What is the canon of English
3: literature? Great writers who are thought by consensus to have outlived the fashions of their times and to be worth not just reading but endlessly rereading.
4: Yeats. Anna Karenina. The Bronte's.
2: When did it first emerge and why was it established?
5: Who has challenged it and how has it changed as a result? It's become definitely more open in terms of gender, sexuality and race. Does it still make a difference to the books we get to read today?
2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. This week we're exploring the canon of English literature in the company of writers and critics from Howard Jacobson to Yomi Shode and from Elaine Showalter to Carol Phillips. And we'll drop in on an event in Shoreditch, which tests the boundaries between poetry and performance to see what, if anything, the canon means to a new generation of readers at the beginning of the 21st century. But our journey begins, and an imposing building just round the corner from The Guardian. Here in the Gustav Tuck Lecture Theatre at University College London, we're standing on the spot where the first steps were taken in formalising a canon of English literature. Here with me is John Mullen, UCL's Head of English and the latest in a long line stretching back to Thomas Dale, who was the first professor of English to be appointed in England when the university opened its doors in 1828. His lectures on English literature were building on a tradition of teaching rhetoric and belles lettre that stretched back to a series of lectures given by Adam Smith in Edinburgh in 1748. But the idea of an established body of English literature that was a matter of pride and belonging was already developing in London, wasn't it, John?
3: Yes, I mean, I think... One of the peculiar things is that the long struggle for people like Thomas Dale to get English literature established as an academic subject worthy of respect and paying people to teach it is a story which postdates by a long way the establishment of English literature in the minds of ordinary readers, cultured people as something to take pride in, something to put on your shelf, something to show your knowledge of, because that story... I think, starts right at the beginning of the 18th century. And it's a story, to me, fascinating story because, I mean, many of my students take it that English literature has sort of always been there. And they think it's always been there because the writers reach back a long, long way, you know. Um, All my students have to study Chaucer, who's probably the first great name in the English literary canon that's reaching back to the 14th century. But actually, until the early 18th century, many educated people would have thought that literature as a body of works which deserved reverence and study, and which you should show your knowledge of and quote from, was a body of works in Latin and Greek. And even in the early 18th century, some great writers were wonderful writer Jonathan Swift, who is part of the English literature canon now, would have been scornful of the notion that learning involved reading books in the vernacular. You know, to him it was obvious it involved reading books above all in the ancient languages. So what changed? What was the difference? Well, I think what changed was English literature, the growth or the establishment of English literature was part of a much larger process of The establishment of a sort of national culture, really, it began actually in some ways with an encounter between English and classical texts, because some of the greatest poets of the late seventeenth and early eighteenth century dedicated themselves to translating classical poetry, Homer and Virgil and Ovid and so on, into English. So there was a sort of attempt to make English a sort of proper language of poetic translation. And from there, it's only one step for people like Alexander Pope, the greatest translator of the early 18th century, to become the greatest English poet of the early 18th century. But in all sorts of fields, in in music and art and so on as well, along with the growth of Britain as a commercial and imperial power the growth of Britain as a cultural power, if you like. There's all sorts of ways of seeing how it starts, but one way is seeing it starting with the establishment of one or two key authors as being as good as the ancients, the ancients being those great classical writers. And the two key authors, I think, in the 18th century are Milton, particularly Milton's Paradise Lost, and Shakespeare, so, for instance, in the second decade of the 18th century, the most widely read and admired writing in English is the periodical essay The Spectator, written by Addison and Steele. And a whole series of these essays, which are read by gentlemen in the coffee house, but also ladies at the tea table a whole series of these papers is dedicated to the elucidation of Milton's Paradise Lost. I mean, real sort of high-intensity literary criticism and showing that, essentially, this work, which is in English and is Christian, is as good as, maybe even better than, the pagan epics.
2: Uh, So the literary canon as a notion, the idea of this shared culture is, is, as you say, beginning in the early 18th century and then moving into the academy towards the end of the 19th century. But the actual word itself is nowhere to be seen. The earliest mention that the OED has dug out of it is uh, somebody writing in American literature in 1929. Mm. And it was not until much later in the 20th century that people began to actually use the term, why is that, what's going on
3: there? Well, it's very interesting, and I, I think that the word canon, which was around in the mid-20th century, actually starts being used a great deal in a sort of pejorative way. So it's a word, of course, which is borrowed from religion and religious law and religious orthodoxy. The canon is something you mustn't doubt.
2: Yes, it's the texts that are allowed.
3: Yeah. and That's set down by sort of the authority of the patriarchs. So although it's a word used in a literary context from the early to mid-20th century, it really becomes a big word from about the 1960s or 70s. And it becomes a big word because it starts being challenged. And the canon is, when I was a student at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, it was a word which was always used by those who were against it in some way.
2: One of the major challenges to the canon came from feminism, from the brute realisation that most of the canonical authors were dead white men. When the groundbreaking feminist critic Elaine Shawalter started her PhD at the University of California, she says feminist criticism did not exist. So what was it like studying English literature in the 1960s?
4: It it was such a given that women were not a, a subject matter for literary study that I never really expected to be able to do it. I went to a women's college as an undergraduate and then I went to, at the time, a rather provincial graduate school, the University of California at Davis, which was just starting a PhD program. And that was a huge help for me because I was sort of expected to go to Yale or Harvard or Columbia. And I didn't because I followed my husband to California. And that turned out to be very fortunate because a new graduate school had fewer restrictions on what you were allowed to study. And I got to do my PhD dissertation on the literary reception of Victorian women writers, which I called the double standard. And I worked with a female thesis director. If I had gone to any of the big American universities, I would not have been allowed to do that. Absolutely would not have been considered. So in a sense, I had a head start. That was a great advantage. But when I started to apply for jobs, I found out very quickly, and I was still quite naive, that many universities simply did not hire women. I mean, let alone that they were interested in what I was working on. They just didn't hire women. So my first teaching job was also at a women's college, and that prevailed for quite a number of years, uh, certainly into the early to mid-1970s. I went to a women's college. We studied male writers almost exclusively. This women's college, Bryn Mawr, had been attended by many of the, you know, leading women writers of the 20th century. We didn't study them. We didn't talk about them. I think Jane Austen was on the list. I think I read George Eliot. I don't think I read anything by the Brontes as an undergraduate. It was really extraordinary. And we had a reading list and there were something like 250 male writers on it, down to the absolute 10th 11th, 12th, 20th rate Irish and British writers and and hardly any women at all, and I was furious.
2: The writer and critic Carol Phillips grew up in Britain and studied English at Oxford in the 1970s, where he found the canon decidedly not under attack.
5: Oh, the canon definitely was not being challenged at Oxford in the 70s. I mean, I remember going into the English Department library at Oxford in 1978, when I'd made my first trip to America, my only trip out of the country, actually, at that stage. And I'd been in America, and I'd discovered writers like Richard Wright and James Baldwin, and writers who were basically black or brown or different from the writers I was studying and doing tutorials on. And I went to look for work, by these writers in the English department library, there was was nothing, absolutely nothing. So the idea of African writers or colonial writers disturbing the canon was unheard of. The idea of American writers or black American writers disturbing the English canon was unheard of. English literature then was very much writing by British people, the colonial exotics who were already making their name and a significant name in, in the literary firmament, the Shoyinkas, the Achebes, the Walcarts, the Naipauls, they were not really included. So to, to be going looking for black Americans was somewhat naive of me. And how did this atmosphere, how did this ambience affect your own work when you began writing just after that? Well, I, I knew I had to discover these other writers because they'd not been presented to me. I had to actually go out and do effectively detective work, find the books, because these were the writers who essentially looked like me, and these were the writers who were dealing with themes that might well be—I mean, I didn't know, but I suspected might well have a a deeper resonance with me or a more immediate resonance. I mean, that's not to say that I, you know, I didn't appreciate Eliot's sense of alienation in the unreal, foggy city that was London, because you know I did. I was a northerner; I'd come to London and. It was unreal, it was foggy and I was an outsider, so there was lots of elements within the canon that appealed to me and I, I could identify with. But I felt that there was going to be other things that I would find in a paul or I'd find in a Walcott, I'd find in a Baldwin. That were to do with race, to do with identity, to do with more uh, pertinent questions of belonging that perhaps the more canonically centred authors were taking for granted. What about by the time you got to arriving at Amherst College in, in 1990? Had things shifted by then? I mean, the, the 1980s saw a, a pretty profound opening up of literature because, it, you know, the 1980s was a decade in which Rushdie published, it was a decade in which Katzia first came to real attention, it was a decade in which Soyinka won the Nobel Prize. So I think the 1980s, that ten years was very important. But I think it was also a geographical shift, because in the United States of America, I think there is a much, there was, and there still remains to some extent, a much more open attitude, a less defensive attitude to issues of canon. Perhaps it's just in the genetic nature of the country, you know, a country which is built upon, give us your huddled masses and plurality of voices, a kind of more heterogeneous tradition. I know it doesn't play out that way in politics but at least the ethos of the nation is more open and that was reflected I think in the way in which English departments constructed their canons. British academic life, British cultural life, British literary life was still very much constructed around you know empire and after empire. And yet there were
2: still signs of some sort of backlash brewing as well I mean that you have Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind published in 1987 and Harold Bloom's uh, The Western Canon a massive bestseller when it was published in
5: 1994. There was a backlash and there was pushback against this opening up of the canon. There was a notion that, you know, the great books should remain at the center and that we shouldn't be teaching, you know, black lesbian fiction, Native American fiction on the same footing as John Updike. So there definitely was a pushback from both blooms. But at least there was something to push back against. I didn't really feel there was anything to push back against in Britain because there was a sort of reluctant opening up of the canon but it was slow it was glacial I and mean, we can look back now thirty plus years later and see it we can see now what was happening but if you were actually participated in it it didn't look like a grouping of authors, it looked like one or two books but it didn't feel like the beginning of a movement
2: According to John Mullen these
3: challenges to the canon were very fruitful
5: About 30 to
3: 40 years ago it really mattered what was in print and suddenly there were lots of female authors who had never been unknown or forgotten, but were simply so much on the fringe of the literary canon that you couldn't actually get them.
2: Oh, you got Virago, founded in 1973. Yes,
3: absolutely. and absolutely. And, and, and actually things like Virago, I think, made much more of a difference to the 20th century canon, which shifted around a lot more than the 19th or or the 18th or the 17th century canon. But even back there, you know, I remember when it was very hard to get the novels of Fanny Burney. You know, you could get selected poems of Christina Rossetti, but maybe not her collected poems. When there were some Elizabeth Gaskell novels which were only obtainable in libraries. It went quite far down, that recalibration, but that actual outburst of new kinds of reading and new kinds of publishing. So that was one challenge to the canon. But what you got from about the late 1970s onwards was a much more, I think, high-pitched, actually, in, in the end, perhaps less productive challenge to the canon, which was connected in universities with the new popularity and currency of literary theory. So the idea now was that what was interesting about literature was the way it was read, not the way it was written. I mean, that's to put it very crudely, but I think it's true. Alongside that, of course, the the thought that in the past what the literary canon was there to do was to serve the ideological values of those who read it and criticised it in certain ways. So it's a mixture of two things. It's on the one hand sort of radical re-reading. Instead of Jane Austen being supposedly a representative of cosy conservative Anglican values you reread it to discover things in it which she might not have dreamt of, which are all the things she tries to hide, which are all the things that are sort of wrong with the world that she tries to celebrate. I mean, I take that as a crude example, but there was quite a lot of that going on. But on the other hand, there's the thought that, actually, if works of literature are valuable and interesting, not for what the author thought they were doing but for what the clever critic can discover in them, maybe the whole notion of a canon is peculiar because you can discover things in works which the beards of the past haven't said were great. And indeed you should do because the canon is all there to serve the ideological values of the society and the culture that needs it.
2: The Booker Prize-winning novelist Howard Jacobson says he came late to writing fiction, even though it was the only thing he'd ever wanted to do,
6: and this was partly because of the canon. I wanted to be too good. I'm an Inglit man. And I went straight from studying English literature with F.R. Leavis, who was, you know, the great critic of the middle of the 20th century, a man I loved and admired, and then went into lecturing in English literature. And I, I had in front of my eyes Dickens and Henry James and George Eliot and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to write Anna Karenina. Bugger, someone had done it. I wanted to write Crime and Punish. I wanted to write those. And everything that I tried to write Although I believed myself to be a novel call myself a novelist in embryo from the age of about 7 I never got round to writing more than a couple of pages of anything. So it wasn't as though I wrote novels and failed. I couldn't even get started. I'd look at the page and think, this was terrible. And it was only when circumstances forced me to lower my sights. I was teaching in a polytechnic in the Midlands, and I felt snobbishly, appallingly, really, but nonetheless, that was what I felt. This wasn't the job I'd been cut out to do. I'd had better jobs, and now here I was doing this. I thought, the only way out of this, really, The only way out of how I'm feeling is to try and get that mastery of the joke. So my first novel became a joke at my expense.
2: After the break, we'll look at how the literary canon speaks to writers that are active today. And we'll ask, do we still need it?
0: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
2: Welcome back to the Guardian Books Podcast. Before the break, Howard Jacobson was telling us how he felt weighed down by the canon and only started writing when he found a way to throw off
6: its shackles. But do writers feel the same today? There's a suspicion of canon in our time, isn't there? The belief, first of all, the very idea of canon suggests authority. Mm. Who are you to tell me? And we have an idea too. very, very slack educational ideas that we must clear things out so I'm shocked to see what kids are reading at schools what of O-Level English what they're reading now a modern poet a bit of rap and they may throw in a, a Charlotte Bronte to, but we did we did Dryden we did Shakespeare whole plays they don't even do whole plays anymore we finished if we started a play for O-Level we finished a play we read Wordsworth we read the whole of the Prelude it was fantastic you have to wonder Understand the basis of the judgments that you make it's a way of studying the history of the, of the language that you speak and why the books that you read now are like they are and not like something else one should never be scornful of reading the past it is not more relevant to read a book that's now read Wordsworth's the prelude and read it properly and let the words seep into you and move, move you there is nothing more relevant a modern poet is not more relevant because he's modern For another Booker Prize
2: winner, the novelist Penelope Lively, the canon was never much of a burden.
4: I've never felt that at the time when I was sort of cutting my reading teeth back in kind of late teens and early 20s that I was tremendously aware of it, really. I think I I was more sort of feeling around trying to discover what kind of books I liked and it was more back then, it was a question of what was sort of in fashion, what was in vogue and that, if um, you remember, was the... It was the age of the Sitwells. it was the age of sort of, you know, extremely flamboyant writing of using um, ten words where one might do and, and um, that kind of writing and, that was, was fashionable. And, and I remember, you know, dutifully reading this because it was fashionable and re- realising I didn't like it very much and thinking that either there was something wrong with me or that or the times were out of joint.
2: According to Elaine Shawalter, the canon is much less important than it used to be.
4: I don't think, in a large social sense, there's much need for a canon now. I think within a university, you have to decide what to teach. You have to decide whether the students must take courses or can select among courses. You have to make choices that are not infinite within an enormous universe of possible texts and subjects. So they have to choose. But the ordinary reader doesn't have to choose. The book reviewer doesn't have to choose, except, you know, what is going to be interesting and and important. You make that selection, but not on the basis of what you think is going to be immortal or influential, necessarily. So I think that for a mass market readership or for people who are interested in books, the canon, in a sense, is still there. There's a revival of interest in classic literature.
2: Carol Phillips is in no doubt that the canon still shapes contemporary culture.
5: I think the canon is defined by academics has had a huge effect upon all of us who are outside of the academic world. I mean, one only has to look at the type of classic TV series that are produced over the years by the BBC, you know. These are always produced, almost always, by Oxford or Cambridge-trained producers, you know, who studied English. And if they want to do a classic serial, they're going to look at books that they know, books that they love, books that they've read, books that they've studied, they're not going to go to the British Library and start to find who was publishing at the same time as Defoe but never made it into the canonic. They, they're going to do Moll Flanders. They're not going to look at the Brontes and think, well, there were lots of other people publishing at the same time as the Brontes, and maybe there's a much more interesting or racy story that could be told in a novel that hasn't made it onto into Penguin classics. They're going to do Jane Eyre. I think it's not just affected our reading, it's affected our whole cultural reception of what constitutes the mirror in which we see ourselves through history.
2: So given all that, uh, given the problems that still exist with with the canon, do we need a new canon, a different canon, or no canon at all?
5: I don't think we can get rid of the canon as long as we have English departments and, you know, and as long as we have English A-level, as long as we have English taught for examinations in schools, we're going to have a canon of some sort. All that's going to happen, and I think that all that is happening, is it's becoming rather less rigid. Again, it's an old fogey term, but around literary standards. It's becoming a little more open to oral literature. It's becoming a little bit more open to visual forms of literature even to the extent of tv and film been studied it's becoming definitely more open in terms of staffs of identity around gender sexuality and race so it's loosened if the canon is loosening as carol phillips suggests
2: becoming more open to influences from visual and spoken culture then where might it be heading next Perhaps we can find some clues in Shoreditch, where Apples and Snakes holds a regular spoken word poetry night for established performers and spoken word novices alike, called Jaw Dance. Apples and Snakes have been putting performance at the heart of poetry since 1982, in an attempt to make unheard voices become heard. And the CEO and Artistic Director, Lisa Mead, is in no doubt the canon is one of the reasons voices outside the mainstream are so often ignored.
4: You know, the
1: artists that we're interested in working with are artists that maybe traditionally are not part of the arts establishment, that maybe a lot of the artists that we work with have dual identities of home they're artists that aren't given those platforms traditionally and I don't think any of that is about the quality of the work that they produce I think that's about not having access to spaces in order to to share their thoughts I was just talking to one of our poets about how divided the world feels at the moment and actually a lot of poets are talking about that in their work and, and the work that particularly spoken word or performance poets whatever you want to call them poets are dealing with is about day-to-day experiences and that for me is something that literature needs to embrace a lot more in a more traditional sense
2: the jaw dance host and poet yomi shode says the canon is a source a writer's toolkit and cites a personal canon including filmmakers such as spike lee alongside poets malika booker roger robinson and inua ellams but he's not interested in ruling whether any particular writer any style of writing should be on
1: or off the list I'm not one for boundaries. People will take their canon how they wish and and talk about what they want to talk about. I don't think there should be some policing around what poetry should be because we are living a time where um, certain politicians are going to go in power, certain people are in power, and we never saw that coming. To take it to football, from when, no offense, from when Leicester can win a Premier League, things are really unpredictable. So, why should we try to always? hold poetry for where it should be and why shouldn't we just be excited at how unpredictable it can be but how it can move things forward
3: the great thing about English literature in a way is that although there may have and continue to be things which stop people from certain groups taking pen to paper or finger to word processor it is culturally the most accessible thing for both writers and readers Jane Austen was a impecunious spinster, but she could write a novel. There's nothing to stop her writing a novel except having somewhere to live and some paper. And, you know, that's all she needed. That's the wonderful thing about it. I think, you know, becoming a composer or a painter or a philosopher is a tougher challenge. But it's undoubtedly the case that if you think of the canon as something that spans the centuries and where writers hand on, in a way, to other writers, that's the crucial thing, then... It's very hard to just make it as a sort of representative body. It's not a parliament. But what about now, in the 21st century? Is there any kind of consensus on
2: what we should be looking at? What's worthy of our study?
3: Well, I think that the scepticism about the canon born of both feminism and post-colonialism has survived. And I think largely... It's an energising and productive thing because it leads to constructive arguments about what one should and shouldn't study. And if you teach in a university, and if, putting my cards on the table, you essentially sort of believe in the idea of a canon, then you also have to believe that it constantly needs to be argued about and justified. It can't be an inert uh, series of choices. Those choices have to keep being made. Those arguments continue. However, the canon as an idea, but also the canon in reality, as what you do, has proved remarkably robust. I mean, Dr Johnson wouldn't be surprised. He would say, well, if these things have survived for a century or two, they're going to survive a decade or two of, of feverish academic speculation. Everyone will know one of the things about Shakespeare, has in common with other literary writers, with the translation of the... English translation of the Bible, is that actually our language is saturated and People are quoting Shakespeare all the time. Actually, believe it or not, people are quoting Alexander Pope all the time.
2: Despite its roots as a symbol of national pride and the challenges it has faced, despite the imbalances of power embedded in a heritage that stretches back hundreds of years, when you talk to the audience at Jaw Dance, the canon is still very much alive, still endlessly debated, still renewed. So do you think what we need to do is we need to make the canon new? We need to expand it or do you think we need a different canon or should we just forget about canons and just find what we like?
1: No, I think we need to allow people to understand that we, we are the canon and that uh, the canon is not just some old thing. We need to make it relevant to today's society, not to get rid of it, but to just make it relevant to our voices. Because, I mean, Shakespeare's a genius. A lot of my friends, if they actually understood what he was saying, would love his poetry, they'd turn it into raps. I want to live and breathe poetry. I love it so much. It's it's all I want to listen to. It's all I want to do, really. What
2: about the classics? Maybe like Milton, Shakespeare, Homer. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I literally feel like, till this day, they're influencing the way poetry is written. Till this day, like their use of internal rhyme, the the message that they want to portray to the audience. Like, literature repeats itself. So, this is literally a repetition of what they paved the way for.
2: But what about the idea that the canon is, like, the tradition is full Mm. of dead white guys?
1: No, 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 that's not true. Like, my argument is that Shakespeare actually influenced Eminem. And if you look at the way Eminem raps, he has this internal rhyme that only Shakespeare could master. So, when actually putting the two together, they're really similar.
2: So, I mean, do you think that the the canon, the Western canon, that's stretching all the way back to Shakespeare and back to the Odyssey, do you think that kind of underpins what you do as a performer?
1: As a storyteller and a writer, I respect both Marlowe and Shakespeare and what they gave to the English-speaking and English-reading world in terms of drama and melodrama. My personal heritage comes from Africa and India, so we've got our own storytelling traditions.
2: So does that mean that you think the Western canon needs to be expanded or do you think we need to change it or do we need a different canon or should we just not worry about the canon at all?
1: It depends in what context, I'm a former teacher so I think that of course then the canon when it's being taught to students in schools definitely needs to be expanded so that young people are understanding that they have got their own unique stories and poems within their cultures and that is brought to the full, because, you know, where would we be without Rumi, without Tagore, without Derek Walcott? He's wrote a very famous epic poem, but kids wouldn't necessarily know that, that we're British, and he's won a Nobel Prize, and that's where the canon needs to be expanded, I think. Thank
2: you. That's it for this week. As always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books, or leave a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Ian Chambers, thanks for listening and goodbye.
1: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.